in our study of Galatians, we're in chapter 2 now, and I want to review a little bit what Paul is doing uh, in this section, and it will end with chapter 2, is he's uh, defending his apostolic authority. And the charge is, among other things, but the this charge against him, uh, presumably by the false teachers, the Judaizers, as we call them, that he's not an apostle. Someone let him in. That he's not an apostle, that the message he made up is a man-made message. It's not one sourced in Christ. And this is what Paul is, in effect, doing. And he lays out eight pieces of evidence to prove and to show that he is a legitimate apostle, had received his word and his authority from Jesus Christ himself personally. It is not made up and it is not sourced in anyone else, not sourced in any individual or any other source other than Christ. All that's familiar to you. That's review, right? Nobody answered right, right? Right. Okay, that's what we're doing. And we are at proof number five, which we, I think, pretty much covered last week. But proof number five is what is sometimes called the famine visit of Paul. When he makes a visit to Jerusalem to take from Antioch, which is where he's where he's from at this time, down to the Jerusalem church. And he says, among other things, that he met, he met with the apostles, Peter, James, and John, presumably. And they affirmed, they affirmed what he was doing. They validated what he was doing. And then verse 6 through 10 is his sixth proof. Okay, is everybody with me? I'm, I'm just summarizing what we've done. Everybody tracking? Okay. Back. Thank you. All right, good, good. Glenn, you're a wonderful man. Thank you. Let me read verses 6 through 10. Oh, I didn't cover 4 yet? Ah, all right. Fred is keeping me accountable here. I didn't quite finish 2, 1 through 5. Let's go to verse 4. Maybe I should even back up with verse 3. In his visit to Jerusalem to take the famine offering, which is the context for that in Acts 11, he writes that I took Titus was with me and was not forced to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. And that, that is where we ended last week now that I do remember that. Remember, Titus himself is a Greek. He is not a Jew. And so the point Paul is making is fairly simple, and don't miss that. If circumcision is so necessary for salvation, and Paul and Barnabas take Titus with them to Jerusalem, if circumcision is necessary for salvation, what should have happened to Titus? Kicked out. He either would have been kicked out or forced to be circumcised. There are only two options. But what does he say? Nobody forced him to be circumcised. Now, it's in the passive voice. Uh, you know what that means? It's in the passive voice. So it means nobody down in Jerusalem, Peter, James, or John, nobody forced us to circumcise Titus. So what's the conclusion? Circumcision is not necessary for salvation. That's the only reasonable conclusion to the point he's making. He didn't have to mention this. He wasn't required, but he mentions it because of the centrality of it to the argument he's making about his ministry, his apostolic authority, and the nature of his gospel that he preaches. And I love verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ, so that they might bring us 
again to slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment with this purpose so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, meaning plural, you Galatians, you Gentiles. So false brothers are obviously these false teachers. We, we called them Judaizers. That's in your notes if you uh, want to remember how to spell that. But these Judaizers, see, they're spying. What does he mean by spying out our freedom we have in Christ Jesus? What does he mean by that? Our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. By trying to use it against them uh, by making them demand the uh, the uh, mosaic law right. right by adding to the gospel the free grace gospel the demands of the mosaic law now this is a theme and remember this is an early epistle written in the, in the fall of AD 49 it's Paul's first epistle so he's going to introduce a term that you will see throughout his epistles it's the term freedom now, when you and I hear the term freedom in the United States of America, we think of freedom like the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal and endowed by the Creator with certain honorable gifts and later life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. We think of the first four freedoms in the First Amendment of the Constitution. We think of political freedom. That is not what he's talking about. He's talking about the freedom from the obligations to the law. In other words, this is so central to everything Paul's going to see. He's going to say in Galatians 6.1, stand fast in your liberty. That's something we'll read about a little bit later on. So freedom. One of the things that Judaizers were doing was putting a burden on the early church that did not need to be there. So let's back up and make sure this is clear to you. If this isn't clear to you, ask me a question. Why would Paul, and it's bold, it's almost audacious how he pushes this. Why would Paul keep pressing that you are free from the burden of the law? What's the relationship between Jesus Christ and the law? He fulfilled the law. That's the key word. It's a key word that's in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew uses it over and over and over again in his Gospel. because That Gospel is written to Jews. He fulfilled the law. So if he fulfilled the law, what is the relationship of the law to the New Testament believer? Pardon me? It's not applicable. Yeah, I mean, it's not applicable to you. It doesn't apply to you. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled it. And another way to talk about this, and I really press this in my preaching particularly, you and I are in the era of the new covenant. And if it's a new covenant, that means it's replacing something that's old. And what's the old covenant? The law. We are no longer under the obligation of the law because Jesus Christ fulfilled it. He brought it to an end and inaugurated the new covenant. And the law has no part of the new covenant. So, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful argument, but it's also central to what Paul keeps saying. It's the nature of the gospel. If you believe, I'm, I'm saying this is what the Judaizers are arguing. If you believe the law is still necessary for complete salvation and complete sanctification, then you're saying something about the work of Jesus. That Jesus didn't do enough. He, he, didn't quite, he didn't quite fulfill it enough. 
So we still have to keep fulfilling it, which is absolutely ludicrous. It's actually abominable. Be even more specific, it's, her it's heresy. When you add human effort to the work of salvation, you have stepped outside of the three grace gospel of Christ. That's why Paul's so upset about all this. That's why he's, uh, he's so, so demanding and categorical in his language. He's not mincing words here. And it, it because, notice the language at the very end of the verse, verse 5. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. For Paul, the gospel's at stake. And the gospel is everything he lives for. It defines his life now. And so it's, it's quite wonderful. So keep this word, by that I mean the word freedom, keep this word freedom at, at kind of the, the front edge of your, of your mind as we're working our way through the book of Galatians. Because the word freedom to Paul is freedom from the obligation to the law. Jesus fulfilled it. And in the new covenant, the law, and this is language he uses in Colossians, the law has been crossed out. And it's no longer applicable to you and me, which I'm very grateful. Peggy and I often say, we're so glad we were born this side of the cross. Don't you agree? I mean, that we that God in his grace so that we would be born this side of the cross. So thank you, Fred, for encouraging me to keep in line with where I left off. <laughs> All right. You with me? Well, can we ask questions or do you need to move on? I think so. Okay, but you have a question. Of course. I do. Um, so you were explaining that this is different from the freedom we enjoyed. Because in those days. Well, I, I just meant that he's not talking about political freedom. But anyway, go ahead. Oh, okay. I, okay, you just wanted to clarify. Yeah. And it's not, that's not the issue that he's bringing up here at all. It, that's not the point that he's bringing up. So, anyway. So, Jim? Yes. No, another question. So, how, how do you tie um, Roman Catholic churches' uh, works based doctrine to this freedom that Paul is talking to here. How do they get their their? I mean, to, to an evangelical, this makes complete sense, right? But there there is so much process and things and rules <clears throat> that that revolves around the Roman Catholic Church. How did they get their brain around this topic? Jim, can you kind of summarize? Yeah. Uh, yes. I, I wish you wouldn't have asked that question, but I'm still going to answer it. But well, anyway. if we need to move on, we can move on, Jim. No, 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 no. It, it's a very, it's a very legitimate, and very appropriate question. I, I, I was only kidding. Glenn's question was primarily uh, in what we have just been talking about: freedom from the law and the nature of the free grace gospel, etc. How do we fold our thinking about the Roman Catholic Church into a discussion like this? Um. And at one level, I could say not easily do we fold it into our discussion. But uh, I mean, I'm going to talk a little bit more, more about this. When we get into Galatians 3 and 4, we're also going to go to James 2, and I'm going to compare the two. But let me just do a, a one, on two, one or two statement summary here. I hope what I'm going to say makes sense. So if it doesn't, let me, let me explain it further. The Roman Catholic Church, and this is in their catechism, it's in, uh, it's in their statement of doctrine. I have both of those books in my office. 
And when I was writing my book on worldviews, I, I relied a lot on that. And so I'm quoting here, I'm not saying something that they would disagree with. The Roman Catholic Church and its official theology fuses justification and sanctification together. Such that salvation officially, in terms of how Roman Catholic dog, Catholic Church dogma puts it, salvation is a process, not an event. It is a process that involves work, the work of God and the work of the human being in effecting, E-F-F-E-C-T, in effecting the salvation of the individual. Salvation begins with infant baptism. It continues with the process of confirmation. And then it is maintained by your participation in doing penance and participating in the miracle of transubstantiation at, at, at the, the, the saying in the Mass and so on. And, and involves even things like last rites for a person who dies uh, in, in the church and so on. So all of those things that are called the sacraments, all of those things are the ways in which God infuses grace into the human being. So what I just said, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Did I lose anybody? I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying something they would disagree with. What I just said is what they would teach you. If a Roman Catholic priest were here and he would ask him that question, this is what he would say to you. That salvation begins, it's a it begins with infant baptism, continues with, with confirmation, is maintained by those things. And so it's that, and this is a, a word that is also a part of it, it's that cooperative work between God and the human being. So you are justified by faith plus your works. And so, I mean, one of the one of the consequences of a teaching like that, if I can say this quite boldly, but I believe it because I have seen this in my own personal life with people coming out of that tradition, a Roman Catholic person who's serious about their faith never has the complete assurance of their salvation. That's right. right? They don't have that assurance. Not even to deal. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, and it's in that sense, it's kind of a sad situation because I believe very strongly, as a matter of fact, that God wants us to have assurance of our salvation. Because if we don't have the assurance of our salvation, of our standing, of our position in Christ, we're not going to grow in, a, in, our, in our walk in faith with him. We're always going to be, oh, this sounds so unkind, I'm to put it. We're always going to be focused on, did I do enough? Maybe instead of going to Mass once a week or once a month, maybe I should go to Mass every day. Very faithful Roman Catholics, certainly a minority, but many faithful Roman Catholics participate in Mass every day. You might remember John F. Kennedy, remember he was president back in the 60s. His mother, Rose Kennedy, she lived to be 104. She went to Mass every single morning of her life in those adult years. She was a very serious Roman Catholic. She was very serious about her faith. And I'm not condemning that. That's not what I'm saying. But it, it's part of that, part of that mentality. And then doing doing penance and going to the priest and priest. I mean, all of those things are none of those things are necessarily evil. But it's that: Am I doing enough in that cooperative grace? Am I doing enough? And so, to me, the freedom of the gospel is: I separate justification, and sanctification. 
Justification is the event in my life. Some of you know exactly when you trusted Christ. Some of you don't. Maybe it depends. You know, if you trust Christ when you're a little child, you're not remember exactly. I remember exactly when I trusted Christ. But whatever that is, that's an event in your life, a point on the line of your life, wherever you want to put it, make an analogy. And the rest of your life is that process of sanctification. And that's what this is what Paul is bringing into the discussion with the Galatians. The law has been fulfilled and completed. Don't look at the law as necessary for your salvation or don't look at the law as necessary for a more complete sanctification. If you add that, you're saying something about the work of Jesus. It isn't enough. Okay? Glenn, does that answer your question enough? Define sanctification. Thank you. It's the process by which the Father transforms us into the image of his Son through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's post-salvation. That's post-justification. Post-justification. Salvation in the, in the New Testament, the Greek word is soterion. Salvation is used three ways, either justification or sanctification or glorification. It's used one. It's all three of those are that matrix of salvation. But it's the event followed by the process followed by the end when we receive our glorified bodies, etc. Well, yeah. I'm sure we're going to touch on this in James, but I, I went to Catholic school 12 years ago. <laughs> um, I hope I didn't James, offend you with what I just no, said. No, no, I'm not offended at all. Um, I, I don't know exactly the verse, or anything, but it says, James says something about faith without deeds is like useless right. or dead or whatever. And I'm sure we're going to touch on that. We will. It's in and chapter I'm two. sure the Catholics look at that. Mm-hmm. As, oh, absolutely. As uh, James uh, saying this, absolutely. you have to have these. Absolutely. James chapter 2, verse, four, verse 14 and following is, is central. That's a central passage for uh, the Roman Catholic Church's view of salvation. That it's a cooperative effort between the human being and God, and works play a role in that. And faith without works is dead. And you, you have to look at what that Greek word for dead, what does that word mean? And we will deal with that. Yeah, I know we I want, when we get to three and four of Galatians, then I want to go to, to James. We're going to, we're going to compare the two. Some charts we're going to look at. Just to clarify, and the language that they're both using is really important to this. Or we miss the point James is making or, and or miss the point Paul's making. All right, this is good. I mean, may I go on, or are there any other questions? <laughs> Rob, you have a question. Well, I, I, I don't want to open it up for a big discussion, but I have a comment. Uh, this, this, it, it, it struck me this morning when I saw one of my devout Catholic friends posted on Facebook denying that Catholics believe that they can earn their way. I thought, and, and I, you know, I became Catholic for a short period. Uh, and and I asked questions about RCIA class and I got a very learned answer from the meeting. Um, it is very interesting. They, they, clearly, they have a greater emphasis on works than most Protestants do. In fact, I think some Protestants are a little bit frustrated with lack of, of the need for obedience. But I, I, I just thought that was telling that my friend would make that Facebook post. Very interesting. 
I think it would be, and this is perhaps what he was driving at in his comments, I think it would be unfair to say that the Roman Catholic Church teaches you earn your way to heaven. I, I would not say it that way. I, I don't believe I said it that way in our discussion. That's not how they think about it. So I'm going to do one more thing. And guys that on the line, you're just going to listen and let me just roll it. I'll send a picture. Can we just say sins affects everything we do? Oh, you were taught that if you're not a Catholic, you can't go Oh, I believe that. No, I, hey, I grew up in a Catholic community. Well, outside the church, there's no salvation. That's one thing that you have. By church, they don't mean the organic. They mean the Catholic. institutional Catholic church. That's absolutely right. I was Protestant on my street. All my kid friends were Catholic. I've been advanced form of Judaism. As you, as you and as a Roman Catholic, as you and I live our lives, we, we, we We've been baptized as an infant. We've taken confirmation. We're we're growing and we're we're learning and we're studying and we're practicing faithfully the sacraments. We're exercising our faith in Jesus, but we're also participating by in our relationship with God through the sacraments. And what God does is God conveys grace based on the treasury of merit that's in heaven. That treasury of merit is the work of Jesus plus all of the saints. Who their works are so great and so wonderful that there's a huge treasury of merit up there. And that treasury of merit is God infuses grace in your life each time you partake of the sacrament. Sacrament, by definition, is the infusion of God's grace as you do something in obedience to Him. You know, participate in penance, do penance for your sin. And if, if by the time you're ready to die, there's still a debt that you owe to God a temporal debt. You're, you're, they, they categorize sin into two categories. And if you still have a temporal debt for sin, then it's necessary <laughs> for you to spend time in purgatory. And the, the word, you can see purge as a verb, comes from that noun, purgatory. And so it purges you and in carrying out at that debt of sin. That you still, it's a temporal debt for sin. That, that you, there wasn't enough merit when you died, as you drew on that treasure and got infused with it. There isn't enough merit, so then you spend time in purgatory. And how is that determined? Who knows what determines that? Well, God would determine that. In other words, when Fred dies, Fred still has a temporal debt. Now, yours wouldn't be much, <laughs> but you know, Rob's would be huge. No, but your, your debt would be small. But whatever. God would determine that, so therefore he sovereignly determines. And it's really, I just, I, I was in a study group on, some of you don't even know what I'm talking about, Dante, who wrote the Divine Comedy, which is a very, very important work of medicine, but he also written in the early 1300s. But if you want to understand the medieval understanding of purgatory, how you, that, you read that book, it's incredible, it's, it's an epic poem, but it, it helps you understand why, and, and then it's not it's not something evil. It's it's let's, let's put it another way. Purgatory is similar to the Protestant idea of sanctification. <laughs> Seriously, it is that you're being you're you're being purged of your sin, but it's occurring after you die. <laughs> yeah, 
not not while you're seeing. I believe that. Well, it, I, I know that's an interesting thought. But it but it is, and that, by the way, that is not original with me. That this is like this is like the Protestants' idea of sanctification. They think occurs after death through purgatory. So Clarence was in purgatory. It's a wonderful life. <laughs> That's right. off his earning his wings and all that stuff. But that's just that's why it it would it wouldn't be fair even that you earn your way to heaven. That's not really true. You are the word that I like to use. They actually using it's translating a Latin word, but it's this cooperative effort. I am cooperating with God in my salvation. I have a role in my salvation. You bring a part. It's not. It's not God completing the work on the cross with Jesus. Everything is done. Everything is completed. I appropriate all that by faith. Period. Not faith plus to maintain it. I must do this. This is this. Or and I may commit a mortal sin, which means I may even almost be in a state of impossible for God to save. And, I mean, they don't talk about it that way anymore, but for many, many, many generations, suicide was considered to be one of those mortal sins. If you commit suicide, I, I said, a person is... Was there blasphemy of the Holy Spirit up there? What's that? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit up there? That's a one... That would be, they would fit that into, it depends on the priest, too, but they would fit that into that, yeah. So it, it's... Well, that's yeah. Glenn. This is all your fault. You started this, <laughs> but it's You're very important. welcome. It's a healthy debate. Please, I hope you. I was not dumping on the church here. I'm no. just trying to clarify the question. So it's just, and the terminology, the terminology is really important to understand the terminology being used and how it's being defined. We're here to clarify, not to judge. Okay. That's what you're doing. All right. Would I would I be able to get back now? Yeah. Okay. Now we, we still are not in five. Now the sixth, the sixth piece of evidence is a a visit he made to the Jerusalem church. Apart from those who seemed influential, when they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Now don't misunderstand what he's saying. He's not making a dig there, Peter, James, or John. To those who seem influential in Jerusalem would be Peter, James. He's not making a dig there. He's just saying something that's really important. At the cross, everyone's equal. At the cross, God shows no partiality. There are not various tiers of saints. There's the really super saint, and then there's the next level of saint. And then, no, no, no. At the cross, everyone's equal. Spiritual equality is a teaching of the gospel. Those, I say, who seem influential added nothing to me. Added nothing to me in terms of what? What is he talking about? He's still talking about the famine visit when he's down in Jerusalem. When I was there, Peter, James, and John didn't add anything to what I was teaching. Didn't add anything to what I was saying. See what that? See what he's saying? This is incredibly valuable. What an important piece of information. The leaders of the Jerusalem Church. I met with them. They didn't say, "Paul, we like what you're doing, but you're leaving this out. You're forgetting that circumcision." 
You're forgetting to add keeping of the Sabbath. Oh, you should be adding those things. What does he say? They added nothing today. That is an important piece of information. On the contrary, verse 7, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. What does he mean by the circumcised? The Jews. What does he mean by the uncircumcised? The Gentiles. So here we see this is so important. Paul is establishing you Gentiles are not inferior to the Jews. As a matter of fact, you have two leaders of the early church. You have Paul, and that Greek word entrusted is a very powerful word. It's one of a stewardship. He, he, Paul, has been entrusted as a stewardship responsibility by God and from God to take the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter has been entrusted with a stewardship responsibility from Almighty God to take the gospel to the circumcised. Equal. Equal authority, equal apostolic authority, equal message, different group. The issue isn't the message. The issue is who's receiving the message. You got that? That's, that is the very strong point he's making in verse 6 and 7. The issue isn't the message. The issue is who's receiving the message. I've been sent to the Gentiles. Paul speaking, Peter's been sent to the Jews. As I am sent to the Gentiles, so Peter sent equal authority, equal message, different group receiving it. Isn't that important in the argument he's making? Defending his apostolic authority? Defending the purity of his message? The issue isn't the message. The issue is who's receiving the message. And he goes on. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised world also, uh, also worked through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, Cephas is Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, it's a great word, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. What does that mean? Peter, James, and John approved of what I was doing. Peter, James, and John extended, you know, they shook hands on it, so to speak. So, I mean, this is a tremendous affirmation. The apostles agreed with Paul. The apostles validated what Paul was doing. The issue isn't the message. The issue is who's receiving the message. Now, that's going to cause some real difficulties in the early church, and that's what's recorded in the book of Acts and leads to the Great Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, but that's outside of our discussion here at this point. Okay? The Jerusalem Council comes in after this event. The what? The Jerusalem Council comes after the, it does. the uh, trip. That's right. The famine. That's right. That's right. This is the famine visit. This is not the Jerusalem Council visit. Paul does not talk about the Jerusalem Council visit in Galatians, which means Galatians was written before the Jerusalem Council. 
Because if he was going to, wouldn't, if the Jerusalem Council really occurred, wouldn't he bring that into this discussion? Because that's, if you, if you have never studied Acts 15, you studied that, but in Acts 15, they, they reach an agreement. The gospel is the same to Jew and Gentile. There is no difference. And James will write a letter. He's the head of the Jerusalem church. He sends a letter to all the different churches in the Mediterranean world. Jews and Gentiles are equal before the cross of Jesus Christ. So we're, we're at a crucial, crucial point here in the argument Paul is laying out in this book. All of the apostolic leaders affirmed what I was doing. The message is the same. It's the recipients that are different, Jew and Gentile. They did ask one thing, though, verse 10. They only ask if we remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And we're, we're pretty certain what he means there is the poor in Jerusalem, the Judean church. The, 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 we're going to read more about this later in the book, and if you read some of Paul's other letters, he talks a lot about this. The Judean church was suffering terribly because the Sanhedrin, backed up by, by the, Roman, the Roman Empire, but with the, the, the governor of, of the province of Judea, had taken property away from people who came to know Christ, Jews who came to know Christ, had, had taken away their positions. They were forced to leave their job. Uh, many of them were kicked out. Most of them were kicked out of the synagogue. I mean, they were really destitute. And so James and Peter and John said, look, Paul, you're going back to Antioch, we know, and you're, 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 you're focusing on that church. Would, would you help us out down here? And so Paul will organize a series of offerings for the Judean church because they're suffering. I mean, it was terrible. Josephus tells us a lot about that in his histories. So th that's what they're talking about, and that's legitimate. But it's not in the context you earn this. That's how you merit salvation. That, that's not what he's talking about. Okay. His, his eagerness was personified by the fact that they came with the famine relief in the first place. Exactly. Which is the reason they're in Jerusalem. And that's recorded for us in Acts chapter 11. That's why they were in Jerusalem in the first place anyway. All right. Now we are at one of the most important pieces of evidence Paul has to offer. And it's recorded in uh, verse 11 to verse 14. There are a number of places I would like to get in H.G. Wells' time machine and go back. This would be one of them. I would have loved to have seen this. We're back in Antioch. It's subsequent to his visits. This is Paul's visit to Jerusalem. Subsequent to that, he's back in there. Remember, Antioch was Paul's sending church. Paul had been brought by Barnabas from Tarsus, where he lived, to serve. And Paul is one of the key leaders of the Antiochian church. So, verse 11. What's the first word of verse 11? But. When Paul left Jerusalem in the famine visit, Things were going well. There was affirmation. There was an understanding of their difference. I am the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter's the apostle to the Jews. But when Cephas came to Antioch, remember Cephas, the Aramaic for, for Peter, 
When Peter came to Antioch, notice his language. I opposed him to his face. What? Peter opposed the first pope. You're supposed to have a little bit of a smile on your face. I couldn't resist it, Ed. I'm sorry. I hope I couldn't resist it. But he opposed Peter to his face. It's a public opposition. What? What? How did he do that? Why did he do that? What were the circumstances? Because he stood condemned. Man, that is strong language. What did he do? Verse 12, he explains it. Before certain men came from James, James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. James had sent a delegation up to Antioch to just investigate, send a report. How are things going? Because remember, Antioch is primarily a Gentile church. It's where the followers of Jesus were first called Christian. And so James, just this was a very normal thing, sends a group up there, find out, check it out, give me a report back. Came from James. He, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. They, they sent out for Papa John's pizza, and they enjoyed that meal together as Gentiles. That's not in the Bible. I just made it up, but you get the point. But when they came, who's they? The delegation from James. When they came, he, Peter, drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision part. Now, there's a lot of discussion about this, but let me add something here. The delegation from James, the beginning of verse 12, and the circumcision party at the end of verse 12 are not the same. The circumcision party is, Paul will, will talk about them like this several different places. The circumcision party are the Judaizers. The ones who believe even after your faith in Christ, circumcision, Sabbath, keeping all this stuff still important. More complete salvation, more complete sanctification. And so they, they are stirring things up. And so Peter, this seems to be something like this. The delegation of James comes up. And they're having fellowship, they're sharing a meal and so on. And Peter makes the decision, I'm going to only eat with the Jews. Because I'm afraid of this circumcision party stirring things up. So to keep peace, I'm going to just eat with the Jews. So I'm going to eat with the Jews like I used to before I came to know Christ, pre-Acts 10. Whereas before this group came up, oh, I was enjoying meals I had coffee with. We had donuts. We ate pork together. I'm making that up, but that's perhaps true. Don't forget the shrimp. And the rest of the Jews, hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by this hypocrisy. Ooh, that's strong language. So Paul says, not only Peter, but other Jewish leaders in the Antiochian church, including who? Barnabas. In my Bible, I put four exclamation points after that. Can you imagine how that must have hurt Paul? 
because they just came back from the first missionary journey. Barnabas, along with Paul, was the leader of that first journey. Now Barnabas is eating, he's separating, he's eating with just the Jews. Now don't forget this. In Acts 10, Peter is in Joppa, and he has a vision where that, remember, that, that blanket sort of type thing come down out of heaven and both in clean, unclean and clean animals in it. And God says, eat. And Peter said, I can't eat that. They're unclean animals. And then to make it, that story is kind of complicated, make it short. Now this side of the cross, there's no longer distinction between kosher and non-kosher foods. Eat. And that made such an impact on Peter that he goes out and leads centurion uh, to his family, to the Lord. They're all baptized. It's a fantastic revival in Caesarea. Because God directly intervened in Peter's life and said the post, the new covenant, post-kosher versus not is no longer applicable to you. Eat pork and enjoy it. Because Jesus fulfilled the law. This is no longer applicable to you. What's Peter doing here? He's doing something contradictory to what he had learned. Okay, but Jim. Yes. Um this this though I mean look at Peter's denial, right? And he he didn't like conflict. He didn't want to get called out. He didn't want to get singled out. So this this doesn't surprise me that it was the act. Well, I th- I think that's that's true. It it's it's avoidance of, and I think Peter's motives in this are not nefarious motives. He doesn't want to create conflict in the Antiochian church. So the best thing for me to do is not make this an issue. I'll eat with the Jews. And Paul, I mean, look what he says in verse 14, because I want to finish this. We only got a few more minutes. But when I saw that their conduct, there would be Peter, the other Jewish leaders, plus Barnabas, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. What does he mean by that? The truth of the gospel. The gospel is for Jew and Gentile. There's no difference. Jew and Gentile equal at the cross. And Jesus fulfilled the law. This no longer applies to us. Peter's, listen, Peter is going back in time. He's going back before the cross. And Paul says, we're on this side of the cross, Peter. This stuff's no longer important. And you should remember this from Acts 10. Peter, you should remember this. What does he say? It's not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas, before them all. What does that mean? This was public. His chastising of Peter was in a public setting at the church of Antioch. It was in the basement of the church where they had their coffee and their meals. I just made that up. I don't know that. But it's, it's, it was in the church setting. This is a public rebuke of Peter. And this is what he says. This is a quote. Most of your translations should have this in quotation marks. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, from Acts 10, 
you now live like a Jew, like a Gentile. So you've been eating pork since Acts 10. But now, now, because of this threat from the circumcision party, you're saying to the Gentiles, the kosher food laws still apply. That's what I'm observing. And Paul calls this hypocrisy. Did you see that? The end of verse 13, he calls this hypocrisy. I only have three minutes left, but I'm absolutely done. So I'm going to take my jacket off. I just took my jacket off, guys. You didn't wonder why I got up. Let's talk a little bit more deeply about this. Think, think with me carefully here. What do you think Paul is really afraid of here? Why, why would he have the courage, the boldness? Remember, Peter was a disciple of Jesus, was with Jesus for over three years, is now one of the key leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Paul came to faith in Jesus' Damascus Road three years later, and he is a, I'm going to use something my father used to talk, he's a young whippersnapper in the faith. My dad used to talk like that. And he, this young whippersnapper, is saying this to Peter. What is Paul afraid of? What among there are many things I want to surface a couple of things here. What what is what is Paul afraid? Why is he taking such a stand publicly, rebuking Peter? Well, it's when Peter leaves. That's when Peter leaves afterwards. The, the Judaizers are gonna say, Well, see, Peter Yes. Goes. That's right. That's right. When 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 this is all over. The Judaizers are going to come in and say, see, even Peter regards this as important. Not that crazy Paul. Does it not also, secondly, dilute the gospel? Yes. It's, 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 and this is what the Judaizers are doing. It's adding something to Jesus. Let me suggest something else. Paul is afraid that you're going to end up with two churches, a Jewish church and a Gentile church. And they're, they're going to be preaching and living out a different gospel. You following? So, I mean, for Paul, this is a, an enormous tipping point in the early days of the church. If I, this is Paul speaking, if I don't nip this in the bud now, it's going to dilute the gospel. It's going to say something about the finished work of Jesus, and it's going to split the church. Because it's Jerusalem and Antioch. They're the two key centers right now of the church in these very early years. We're only about 16 years after Jesus went back to the Father. And so, I mean, this is really a crucial turning point. What's going to happen here? The text does not say anything about Peter's response. The text does not say anything about the church at Antioch's response. It doesn't say anything about James's response. But what should we infer? It nipped it in its bud. Now, we're going to do this next week, but verse 15 through verse 21 is a summary of how Paul 
no, theologically deals with this. And we must infer, and I think this is accurate, we must infer that Peter, Peter responds to this correctly. His chastisement, this rebuke, resulted in Peter changing his behavior. Because some of the things we see in the gospel, in the, excuse me, the book of Acts. Because most of this, what we're reading right now, is occurring in Acts chapter 14. A lot more that happens after. I saw a hand out of my corner of my eye. Yeah, Rob. So my question is not that we have a split church. Uh, well, yes, it is. We do have a split church. We, I mean, but the, now obviously we have a split in 15, 16, or whatever it was that the Protestant churches formed. But is it further back than that? Is Was there a split like AD 300 or whatever it was? I, I don't know. Between the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic. There was a split in 564 between the Church at Rome and the Coptic Church, which was largely, Coptic is largely Egypt. And then in 1454, July of 1454, there was a split between the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. And then in 1517, there was a split, which of course is what's usually called the Protestant Reformation. And that goes through 1648, that's, and all the various Protestant groups are formed and so on. Did that negate Paul's uh, saving the church by convincing Peter? Well, uh, uh, yes and no. I mean, the issue, uh, the issue for Peter and Paul at this point was applying the kosher laws to the post-resurrection ascension of Jesus, the new covenant. And that's settled. That's no longer an issue. It will not be an issue until you get into some other things. The Coptic Church uh, split in the 500s was over a whole issue dealing with how you look at Jesus, very theological. The split between the Eastern Church and the West Church of 1454 had nothing to do specifically with the gospel. It had everything to do with all kinds of rituals, icons, language when you observe the date of Easter, I want all those things. There were seven major crosses of the split. Now, the Protestant Reformation was different. The Protestant Reformation was about the gospel. And that's what we're going to get into when we get into James a little bit in chapter 3 and 4 when we bring James into the picture and compare the two. Because the Roman Catholic Church will, by that time, as a result of a number of councils, particularly the Fourth Lion Council of the 1200s, lays out a series of these very important sacraments that are necessary for maintaining your position of salvation in your cooperative work. And Luther will be reading the Book of Romans and say, I don't see that in the Book of Romans. It's sola fides, faith alone, that brings salvation. And, and Luther stresses again what Paul stresses in the Book of Romans, the difference between justification and sanctification. So the Reformation was really about the nature of the gospel. And that's because of what had happened in approximately 1,100 years of the medieval church. I know I'm using language you may not be familiar with, you're not into history, but of that medieval church period when a lot of things were added to. And this official stuff that I've written up here becomes a part of official Roman Catholic theology. And Luther just says, I don't see that in the New Testament. 
And he starts to say, what does the New Testament teach? And he goes back to Paul. He goes back to Augustine, who was very, very influential in, in Luther's life. So Jim, Augustine in the 400s. Jim, where does the Messianic Jews plug into that? Well, the Messianic Jewish movement is really, for the most part, a 20th century phenomenon, although you might see it a little earlier than that. But that is a movement, it's more, more particularly in the last couple of decades of the 20th century. Okay. There are Jewish people that say, for me to maintain my identity and what I see as a Jew, I am going to observe a lot of the unique aspects of being a Jew. But I still have put my faith in Jesus. Jesus is my Messiah. Yeah. Part of the challenge of some of that is it gets to the point where it almost seems like some of the Messianic Jewish leaders are adding to the faith in Jesus, keeping up Jewish stuff as a means of sanctification. That's a big debate going on right now. You're asking all these questions are getting me on bunny trails, and I don't want to get on that bunny trail. But is that enough for me to answer it that way? It is. Thank you. It's Easter. We're supposed to get down bunny trails. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Mercy. I'm just going to leave that line there. Now, tomorrow, what I want to do is, is, is look, start verse 15. If you have an opportunity to read that, 15 through 21, because it's going to take us about 45 minutes to get through this. I'm going to write a bunch of things on the board, because here is Paul. Most of your translation should have the quotation marks end with Jews in verse 14. And then verse 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 through verse 21, Paul summarizes, this is how I talk about this stuff. This is how I incorporate what Peter is living out as a threat to the purity of the gospel. And this is not easy. It's, it's, it's difficult. So I've, I've, uh, I've got some things that I'm going to be able to share. I hope that will clarify. This is very powerful, though. And when we're done with this, you are going to really know how to talk to a Jewish person about faith in Jesus. That may be an unrealized expectation, but we'll see. Anyway, so if you have a chance to read it, read it a couple of times. Not hard. I shouldn't say it's not long, but it's hard. As some of it you said, oh, how am I making all these connections? We we'll start at 16. I will start at verse 15. We'll start at verse 15. All right. It was a good session today. A lot of good interaction, good questions. And uh, yeah, please, you don't call me pastor. Just call me Jim. All right. Uh, this is kind of, you don't have to worry about being Protestant about where we're going. But anyway, my family's divided. My dad's half and half half. I've got a cousin. She goes to Mass every day. Wow. And she told me the other day, they didn't have to worry, but she talked to a priest, and there's going to be a few of us Protestants that may make it to heaven. <laughs> so I want you guys to say a little better about that. <laughs> I'm really thankful that the security of my salvation is not dependent on what a priest says. It's dependent on my faith in Jesus. So anyway, I didn't mean that as a dig, but I'll, I'll, let me pray. I'm going to remember God here as we pray. Father, thank you for... The book of Galatians, the first epistle of Paul, it's so powerful, so clear as he lays out the defense of his apostolic authority and the purity of the gospel message. The difference between him and Peter was not one of the messages, it's the same message.
into the different groups. So we see even Peter struggled with how to live this side of the, the, the cross, how to live in a non-Jewish, non-kosher church where the things of the law are no longer applicable because Jesus fulfilled it. And the free grace gospel of Jesus changes everything. So as we're exploring this together, thank you for the good interaction, good questions. The men are thinking about this. They're applying it and thinking it through, which is so important. We engage our mind as well as our heart and soul with Scripture. Lord, I pray for Don today. I, I didn't realize he had been diagnosed with Parkinson's, and particularly as a result of this fall, what has happened in the surgery he's needed in his face. And we pray for healing of his body quickly. We pray that you'll help to restore him to full health. Hopefully he'll be able to rejoin us in not too many weeks. We do commit our brother to you. And any other needs here in the group, either online or here in the, in the room, we trust each one to you. Thank you, Lord, that you empower us and enable us to engage with our world to represent you. We want to do that as your salt and light in this phase. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.